You're listening to Culture and Christianity, a podcast of In-Town Community Church. You will find in the description for this episode links to handouts and resources that are mentioned during this episode. Thanks for listening. All right, again, welcome. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here at In-Town, and this is our second week of a conversation that we are calling Trans and the Gospel. Um, If you did not get to listen to week one, that's okay. But I do want to let you know that uh, one of the things we emphasized last week was the importance of language and just the reality that so many of these terms that we're using are debated within society and are difficult sometimes to understand their meaning. We unpacked a lot of that last week. So while you can't stop time and go listen to that right now before being in the chair you're in, um, if you have any questions about why I am using certain terms the way I am using them, I would love to talk to you, but also go back, listen to that. All of these are being recorded, um, and that will help you understand um, why we're doing some of the things we're doing. Number two on the housekeeping list, we again are going to be um, I'm going to be collecting questions um, and really just understand two reasons for this. It's not at all that uh, we don't want you asking questions. It's exactly the opposite. Um, but the reality of this topic, um, of you know, so many topics that we could have, is um, I want you to be able to have a safe space to ask your question um, and to ask your question you know, without having to wordsmith it for the group. Um, again, we're dealing with language, and, and so many of us come from different perspectives and different experiences. We bring different feelings to the table. We talked about that last week. And so I want you to be able to have some of the safety of being able to ask a question and not be worried about um, whether it came out okay or not. So you can go ahead and send questions in using those details there in front of you if you would like to. Last but not least... Last week, um, as I said, last week we talked about um, a bunch of details, a bunch of uh, questions, uh, definitions, that sort of thing. We also did one other thing as well, and we want to kind of, again, articulate that, rephrase it, help clarify it. We talked about the question of gender and what gender is and is not and some of the struggles therein. We did say... And we do believe, it is the position of of our church and our denomination, it is my position that there are fundamentally two genders. And we did do our best to cement that, recognizing that often scripture is not necessarily attempting to overtly answer some of the modern day questions we have. So we have to trust in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we're reading what has been written and given to us. Nonetheless, we did kind of cement those two genders back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with this idea of sameness and difference, that we are created in the image of God to reflect God's glory uniquely in the world, uniquely in creation. And at the same time, this idea of marriage and sex and procreation, all of these things keep popping up throughout Scripture right alongside that articulation of sameness in the image of God. We very much said that that does not mean 
that someone cannot image God fully without being married or having children or being sexually active or, or whatever. Case in point, Jesus. But at the same time, whenever we see in the Old Testament any boundaries that are often given to the Israelites that probably are the texts that would most connect today to issues of trans or LGBTQ issues, things like cross-dressing, things like um, one uh, gender acting like another gender, that sort of thing, it's always brought back to this idea of clarity with respect to the image of God. It's always brought back not to a a place of... um, Idolizing marriage, again, or idolizing procreation, but, but nonetheless, this idea of clarity. As the people of God, we want to be a people who show the image of God well. And I do believe that God's plan of two genders does that. That being said, we also spent a lot of time talking about how gender is, in some respects, its presentation is very culturally constructed. And we talked about how easy it is for us in our culture to conflate these two arguments, saying that there are two genders must equal basically two gendered stereotypes about how to live out those genders. And we talked about how that is why often in our culture, when we talk about gender as a spectrum, I think a lot of us as Christians get very afraid because we are worried about the lack of clarity, the muddling of that. But what we sometimes lose in those discussions is an ability for us as Christians to glorify God in lots of different appropriate but still different ways. So we are at once trying to affirm two genders and at the same time trying to avoid a sort of John Wayne and Barbie syndrome that judges anyone and everyone who is trying to glorify God um, in a much more diverse world. And there's a lot more that we could say about that. Um, Let's talk, if you'd like to. But that's where we went last week. Here's what we're going to do this week. This week, I want to do kind of two things. I want to give you a roadmap or some direction for where we're going these last three weeks. And then I also want to give you a framework for processing and maybe even having conversations with other people, some of whom may be trans people themselves, about them and and about you and about life. The direction we're going um, is a framework, a a direction that is pioneered by a guy named Mark Yarhouse. Yarhouse is a uh, psychologist and endowed chair at Wheaton College, which, if you don't know, is a um, Christian college in um, kind of the the premier Harvard of uh, Christian thought in our world. Wonderful, wonderful place. Yarhouse has written a lot, and there's a QR code this week on the back with a couple of different resources, one of which is a four-part YouTube series he gave at Biola University, which is fabulous on issues of sexual identity, and he gets towards the third and fourth of those conversations. He does get into trans issues as well. But 
he gave me something that was really, really helpful. It's this idea that, that one of the major issues in our world today with respect to trans is that the conversation you and I are having or the conversation I'm having with anyone about this subject, be they themselves trans or not, we make a lot of assumptions. And we said last week, yeah, we make a lot of assumptions about language. But this week I want to say we make a lot of assumptions about everything. And I'm going to kind of put everything into a box that I'm just going to call lenses. This idea that I'm even having this conversation. If, if Sam and I are having a conversation about this, I know Sam well, we have a relationship. I can assume a lot of the lens that he's going to bring to our conversation. But I might not be able to assume that about everybody. I might not know that about everyone. And so one of the great just deep struggles is when two people think they are talking with the same lens so that they can understand one another, and actually they're just completely talking past each other. Yarhouse outlines three of these lenses, and they're going to correspond to the remaining three weeks of this class. This week, next week, and the last week of July. First of all, diversity. What's he mean by diversity? Diversity is uh, what he would articulate as probably the, the, the best encompassing of our, our cultural milieu, our place in the world today. It's a belief that uh, due to suffering and loss and um, deep-seated fear for a very, very long time, uh, the LGBTQ community in the world um, has very much kind of coalesced into basically a people group with a lot of similarities to a racial group or a national group. Of course, some differences as well. But uh, the lens of this is by seeing them this way and then importing onto that our cultural value of wanting to see diverse perspectives and people bringing new things to the table and caring about everyone's point of view very, very deeply. Largely in our society, the idea of trans is one that is supposed to be celebrated, um, one that is supposed to even be uh, perhaps valued above other perspectives that have been able to share things for a long time. You might have lots of feelings about that or a lot of anxiety about that, and I get it too. Um, The second perspective is divinity, and this is the uh, moral and spiritual perspective. And, and Yarhouse points out this idea, uh, this is usually where Christians live. Uh, the first answer or question I usually get if anyone wants to talk to me about issues of transgenderism is immediately, is it okay or not? Um, so there's this idea. And, and, and in some ways, that's a very, very dangerous question. In other ways, that is actually a great question in the sense that A lot of the Bible, especially the Old Testament with Israel, was very much concerned with this idea of is something sacred or not? Is something holy or not? Um, Am I allowed to be clean or not in doing this? So this is not a dynamic that is foreign to Scripture or foreign to who we are as the people of God. Dicey, but not foreign. So we're going to get into that. And then lastly, and somewhat controversially, Yarhouse uses the idea of disability. And he does not necessarily want to label 
trans as a disability, but he does want to lean into something again. We'll talk about this much more in two weeks, but it's worth saying now. The vast majority of individuals who struggle with gender incongruence or gender dysphoria, this idea that their mind and their body, who they think they are and how they are biologically put together are very much out of sync. The vast majority of these individuals do not exist at the political and cultural poles that our very politicized and polarized society often pulls us towards. The vast majority of individuals who deal with gender incongruence and gender dysphoria themselves do not outwardly transition. Um, they do not seek medical or hormonal transition. Uh, still a minority of them would change pronouns. A majority of them simply struggle and suffer and deal with this. And I think that's actually a, a hidden perspective that doesn't get talked about a lot. How hard this is for trans people. And so we're going to talk about that. Especially in light of Jesus who uh, came to save the lost, the hurting, the broken. What does that do if we kind of into this politicized structure, get this reinsertion of a reminder that there are suffering people in the world. So that's our roadmap for the next three weeks. This week we will be talking about this idea of cultural um, diversity. I will say from the forefront, I say this every week, check your emotions. It's just always great for us to know who we are coming in and knowing what our biases and you know, what we're going to bring to the table. This week, just be very aware of this. If you are someone who's very politically affluent, um, whatever side you are on, this, might, this, this topic today might charge you up. That might not be a good thing. Just be very, very aware you know, of, of saying, oh, yes, good. This means in-town's on my side. You know, I very, very, very much... Uh, there's a wonderful and, and very little talked about uh, passage in the book of Joshua, right before the much more well-known story of uh, Joshua and the people of Israel defeating Jericho by marching around it and whatnot. Joshua has not yet um, won the hearts of the people. He's not yet able to completely uh, rally them towards Jericho. And so he is out wandering in the desert alone while everyone else is asleep, which if you're the general of a foreign country is not necessarily a smart thing to do without bodyguards but he does it anyway and he suddenly sees what he thinks is a soldier in the distance um, and he says stop are you for us or for our enemies and the soldier who is not a soldier but is actually um, depending on the theologian you read could actually be a pre- incarnate Jesus or perhaps just an angel but nonetheless the answer of the soldier is beautiful it is neither I am the commander of the armies of the Lord and I have come basically the idea being Joshua the question of whether I'm on your side or the enemy's side is the wrong question are you on my side and so I just want to be very very careful as we deal with that because the flip side is also true you very much, especially if this is your first week and not your second week. The reason I wanted to lay this out at the beginning is because 
this is not a four-week discussion on the politics of trans and culture and Christianity. That overemphasis in our culture is very, very bad. Now, if we don't talk about it at all, that's also bad. So we need to have a week about it. It's this week. But this is not what all four weeks look like. So, however you take that, awesome. The second thing I want to do, and then we're going to talk at our tables for a little bit. I want to talk about a framework. What we're going to do here in just a moment is a little exercise. Um, we, are, we do have three TVs, but there's a lot of you, which is amazing. You may not be able to understand what you're seeing on the screen. That's okay. You'll, you'll get it. Um, maybe those in front who can see the subtitles will better, um, can, can provide a different insight than those in the back, but don't worry, you're not actually missing something. Um, a few years ago, Starbucks released a commercial um, in India as a part of uh, Pride Month. It's, I'll be honest, it's a beautiful commercial, whether we believe it or not. We're about to watch it. And what I want you to do is I want you to look for three things. This is also practice because I believe these are three things that we can bring into any conversation we are having either about these issues or even more so with someone who might be espousing these issues. So I want to walk through them really quick. The first one is beauty. What I mean by beauty is this. If, if we are made in the image of God... Uh, a number of traditions have this. The Reformed tradition at some, at some points has, has emphasized this well. Um, it's actually one of the things that drew me to becoming a Presbyterian, honestly, was um, a belief in what's called common grace. And what this means is this, that we do, as Christians, believe that we are made by God and good. And at the same time, we believe that we are sinful and fallen in rebellion against God. The hard switch is this, that we believe our rebellion against God is sufficient to cut us off from God totally. Because God is holy and awesome and amazing and good and cannot have sin in his presence whatsoever. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we can't work our way out of the pit we're in. At the same time, we believe that while that sin and rebellion is sufficient and it does permeate everything. It is not total. Which means this, you cannot sin badly enough to lose the image of God in you. As hard as that is sometimes, either in your hardest moment or mine or some stereotypically bad Hitler-Stalin type moment. Nonetheless, simply being a man or a woman created by God is imaging God in this world. Furthermore, what we believe because of that, that means there is good broken and not good enough to somehow erase or go away from the deep sin that we have. We're not talking about merit salvation or whatnot. But nonetheless, in our brokenness, everyone also then still images God in all of the, some of the different things they do. Now, sometimes this is a great struggle. I remember as a boy growing up and down the street from my house, there were... 
a poor couple. They had three boys. They were my best friends. We hung out all the time together. Mom in this, really, in this family was a quadriplegic. And dad was a bumpkin alcoholic, was kind of the best I could describe him. Um, but even despite some of, some of his own issues, I've never seen a man more dedicated to a woman in my life. And imagining as an adult now what it took that man to pick his wife up every morning out of bed and give her a shower and get her ready for her job and then go to his job while raising three special boys <laughs> who were my friends. I remember how much of a struggle it was to go, that actually is my best picture of a Christian marriage. These guys were vowed atheists. And how hard it was to sit there and sometimes you know, be in my own church and see the fallings and whatnot. Anyway, I could go on forever. The, the point being, lost people can still glorify God. And we do God a great disservice when we do not make some of those connections well. Beauty. Empathy. Second one, empathy. I want to make sure these are um, separated. Beauty and empathy are separated. What I mean by empathy is not simply a place of common ground, which is how it can often be understood. But I actually would like to say a place of common brokenness or common suffering. Because again, the world's broken, and we are broken people, and we still experience, even, even as Christians, being redeemed by Jesus, we still are in this already not yet. We experience the brokenness of our world, and so do they, whoever the they are. There's common ground there. It's actually fascinating, sad in some respects, but also fascinating to wonder how other people, if, if my hope is Jesus... What are other people's hope? If they feel the same brokenness I feel and the same anger at the world that I feel, how do they deal with it? Often, not always, people who might be on um, the more political side of the trans movement would articulate some of the decisions they have made about their either sexuality or biology or gender and the cultural changes as an answer to that brokenness that they feel. Rather than being angry about that, that is a wonderful place for us to connect. So where are they hurting? And how can I find common ground with that? Lastly, I'm very mad. I'm very mad because the spell check completely changed this word and I did not catch it on that slide this does not say integrity look at your handout it is supposed to say incongruity incongruity it's okay you'll remember it better this way incongruity a wonderful apologist who uh, has influenced uh, many in our tradition and myself very much was a guy named Francis Schaeffer many of you have heard of him um, Schaefer was known for being able to have wonderful conversations with um, very broken people, was a very broken person himself. Um, but one of the things that, that he loved to do was to have a conversation with someone and then in a loving way, not a gotcha or a I'm going to now pick you apart way, but in a loving way, ask them how they saw 
the answers they had to life as being congruent with how things actually were. I believe if we can see this is incredibly If we walk through this with people, then one of the things we can do is at the end of this to say, man, this is awesome about you. And man, I'm so sorry you're hurting in this way. I am too, or I've been there. Incongruity would say, I feel like you're, you're hurting in this way, and it seems like you're, you're answering it with this. Is that working out for you? Like, talk to me about that. This idea of, uh, this is not debate, this is not kind of logic class, but, but there is a sense in which Christians, we often enter into apologetics discussions as debate. We want to win the war of ideas. Schaefer was famous for saying people are, are illogical. We're not Spocks. We don't just sit down. Now, all of us have a personality difference, right? And some people might be more akin to this than others, but none of us sit down and fully suspend our feelings for the sake of having some drawn-out argument with points and citations and refutations to those points. As a result, if Marshall and I are having a discussion, this is what sitting in the front row gets you, no. <laughs> if we're having a discussion, a debate, we're getting into it and it is hard. At best, if I win, I'm going to make him feel stupid. At best. If I win, if we actually come away and he actually says, wow, I was wrong and Steve was right, he's not going to be happy about that. He's going to feel stupid and belittled. And that is not okay. That is not who we are as people. But if I can help Marshall get to that on his own, I'm going to walk alongside you, but just just help me understand, like, how'd you come to the suspicion? Is that working out for you? Like... I kind of went this way, and then Jesus found me, and this happened, and this is still hard, but I still think this is... You see the relational aspect to to that? And that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen on a discussion board or a Facebook post. It's the kind of thing that doesn't happen with a bumper sticker. It's the kind of thing that doesn't happen in anything other than you being in real people's lives. But I do think this... If we can train ourselves to think this way, when we are also viewing media that is not going to have the same perspectives as us, we're going to be better able to step into people's experiences that way. So, because you cannot offend this commercial, let's watch it and then come to some discussion. So I want you to watch this briefly, and then you're going to spend just a few minutes at your tables trying to point out the place of beauty, places maybe of beauty, empathy, and incongruity. All right, everybody. Oh, I hate to cut off the conversation, but hey, that's what lunchtime's for. Go take each other out to lunch. Keep talking. All right, but... As you're coming back to me, just one, one quick poll. One quick poll. Okay, ready? Just really, really quickly. 
I want to know which one was hardest. It doesn't have to be for your table. It can be just for you. What was hardest to pick out? Those of you for whom beauty was the hardest to pick out. Those of you for whom empathy was the biggest, hardest to pick out. Those of you whom incongruity was the hardest to pick out. Those of you deathly afraid of raising your hand in a crowded room. No, it's okay. Um, good, good, good. All right. Well, with our remaining time, what I'd like to do is to talk to you just a little bit about some ways of thinking about the cultural pressures of the moment in which we were in, some categories for you. Again, I have told you before, I'm not the answer man, but I hope to give you some tools. This is a comment. I've used this uh, illustration before, but it's really, really powerful for me. Thousands of years ago, if you saw a comet streak across the sky, your immediate thought would be, what are the gods trying to tell me? It would not just be a question of interpretation, but that would be the, the only framework you would even have you would not even ask the question of whether or not this was a rock hurtling through space. You would not even think about what is that made of. You would not think of scientific questions whatsoever. Why? Because the frameworks of your mind, the way in which you think, is conditioned a certain way. To believe that you are an entity that is beset by many, many supernatural forces that you cannot control. And if the gods want to get a hold of you, they send a pretty awesome message. What do you think about today when you look at a comet? Probably very, very few of you, if any, are asking, is God trying to tell me something? Most of the time in my family, it's, ooh, shooting stars. You know, I hope there's more of them. You know, except for my one beautifully geeky son who pulls out the space book and immediately rattles off all the science questions that he can about comets, assuming that I know everything because I'm dad. I share that with you because scholars call this idea plausibility structure. And again, it's just simply the idea of what people think. I think sometimes we can approach trans issues with a sense of condemnation, condescension, in some respects because it is just very, very hard for us as, as Christians to consider why anything that we've talked about so, so far with trans could even be possible. Like, how could you get there? You know, there, there's almost that sense of, yeah, just, I hate to say it, revulsion that sometimes we show. But I think we need to realize, and, and Jimmy's talked about this as well in some previous culture and Christianities, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Christendom anymore. I think there's actually a sense of kind of moving down to that green block of how shouldn't we respond on the handout. In the same way that last week we brought our own feelings and emotions to the table, I think it's actually very helpful for us to consider the collective emotions of Christianity, at least Christianity in the West, 
what we're collectively bringing to the table and how the massive changes in our society have, have, have put a lot of pressure on us to feel certain ways and how we've responded. I think we have often responded uh, to these changes with grief and loss, a sense of loss. Loss that actually in some ways it was pretty easy for us for a very, very long time. We trusted sending our kids to school. We made them Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and thought that would help deal with our own parenting issues. We had great relationships with grandparents and, and, and all the things, right? And, and I get that that's stereotypical Americana, but, but it's there. And there's a sense in which we've lost that. I think what's hard is collectively, often in a very politicized and polarized society, what we have done with our grief, you know, if you think about the stages of grief, which we've talked about before, very common in our talk, although they're not linear stages, one of them is very much anger. And I think we have often responded to something that is making us actually just very sad and longing for Jesus and longing for home. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The end of Revelation says, instead with a sense of anger and a sense of fight. Why is that? Well, I think it's revealed a lot inside of us as well. And ironically, it's probably a place of empathy. The sociologist Robert Bella in the 1970s, um, coming out of the 60s, noted that there was a, what he called a new, a new philosophy of the world, a new way of thinking. You could also call it a religion. He called it expressive individualism. But it, it simply was his word because he didn't want to use atheism because we, we import way too much into that word. His words for uh, simply that, that, that I got a heart and my heart, I sit on the throne of my heart. I am the central authority for my life. This was um, summed up very, very well in Nelson Mandela's favorite poem um, when he said, I am the captain of my soul. This sense that, that I'm going to make it and I can fight through my adversity and I am the one who dictates all of those things. I mean, there's so much wrapped up from American culture to stoicism to affirming of, of feelings. There's so much wrapped up into this idea of being able to say, it's okay to be who you are. And come on, what parent hasn't wanted to say that to their kid in some ways? Yet, what Bulla talked about and what others have, have moved to since then is this idea that I think without realizing it, that is the religion of our culture. Even some people who espouse Christianity. And I think sometimes we even have elements of that. It's that back to that Joshua problem. Whose side are you on? Are you on my side? Are you on their side? Why do I want you to be on my side? Why? Because I want to be affirmed that I'm right. I think sometimes our anger at schools, our anger at politics, our anger at medicine, sometimes we need to think about, before I respond to this, am I, am I actually just feeling a loss? 
Am I feeling sad? And I'll be honest, how much more? With so many of my trans friends, I think I could actually articulate, man, you represent a bunch of change for my people. And they would get it. They would not be mad at me for it. It would be a great conversation to have. Related, I think we often experience a sense of anxiety and shock. Again, that disgust, that sense that, you know, a person comes and, and, you know, perhaps is presenting as an alternate gender or whatnot. Or we hear about something taught in our local schools. Or we hear about, again, something happening with medicine. Now, I don't mean to belittle these things, by the way. Side note. I, I fully understand that, that, that you know, I've got kids myself. I, I feel the brokenness we have in some of these places. And I'm not at all saying that there's not a point for activism. I'm not at all saying there's not a point for political work. I was actually incredibly humbled and floored by the number of conversations with you guys that I had in the last week about the practical implications of this for your work, for your vocation, for the systems that you're a part of that involve leading people and spending large amounts of money and influencing others. I mean, it's amazing to think. And yet, I think, again, we often deal with this idea of um, the world changing around us with, ill. how could they do that? How could they believe that? How could they move with that? Personal story, I experienced this um, a couple of months ago. No, it wasn't a couple of months ago because it would have been June, Pride Month, so just, just a month ago. Um, Christy and I were on a date and um, a very, very rare date in which we were not with our children. Um, our lives do not always revolve around our children. So what do we do on date night after going to an Italian restaurant? We go to a children's bookstore to shop for our children. Problems. Um, anyway, we go to this bookstore indicator. Some of you might, might know it. It's a wonderful place. And right when I walk in, there is a very large stand of books written for Pride Month to kids. So not just books about, you know, talking to parents about trans issues or sexuality issues, but books written to kids. And I picked up a couple and I started reading, and I felt my emotions start to get up. I felt my, like, mad protector thing in me. But thankfully I didn't have my kids with me, so I actually had a moment to think. And... Something floored me that I couldn't get out of my head later on that night. What floored me is how similar those books were to the books that I read to my kids about Jesus. And as hard as it is for me to think, if I really am a person who believes that the only way to fully be dignified and to matter and to care is to believe what is in my heart and be who I'm supposed to be and figure that out if that's the central message of my life I am going to teach children that with wonderful cartoony pictures and really really accessible books and if I'm a teacher I'm probably going to bring that into my classroom and if I'm a doctor I'm going to advocate for children being able to do you know, medical procedures to their body and their own rights and that sort of thing. 
Now, I don't have to agree with that. I'm not telling you to either, but I think that perspective shift of just saying, like, we represent the same thing to them. The them, whatever them. We can move much farther than trans issues there. We represent the same thing to them. A lot of people are angry about Christianity right now because they don't realize they've changed their religion to this, and now Christianity is a threat. Because now Christianity is telling them someone else is actually the central authority of your life, and you need Jesus. We have to acknowledge that we actually represent a massive change and shift. They are also experiencing grief and loss and anger. I think there's a lot there. And I think what that needs to do is to drive us to a place of humble truth and radical love and hospitality. I've seen this happen in IDX. and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. Um, God's done a lot in my life to bring me to this position, and I'm an absolute wretch in most other ways. But we have LGBTQ kids coming to this church every Sunday night. We have trans kids coming to this church all the time. And it blows my mind because we're not, not teaching the gospel. We're just go along, going along with real life and talking about the Bible and, and moving through things and doing small groups and eating pizza and having a great time. And, and I have had an individual sit there very clearly not the gender that they are supposed to be in dress and everything and say, I came back here because I was lonely and I knew I could find friends here. And I'm not saying it means Jimmy and I should preach any differently. Winsomely, you know, with, with, with care for who's in the room. But, and I think that's what people are afraid of. But could we be a place, in town be a place, where trans people and LGBTQ people and lots of other people too, they actually experience incongruity walking through our doors because they're like, we know what an orthodox position about all of these things are. And also, man, you love me so well. The times in Christian history where Christianity has actually been the minority but been able to do those two things simultaneously have been the most powerful moments in the history of the church. And I'm going to start preaching if I keep going, and that's where I'm at. But, okay, last pastoral thing. You can do this. I know you. I love you. I've been loved by you in my own brokenness, and I think you guys can do this. And I know I'm not taking questions usually, but Estella, I like you too much. What's up? Yeah, what I just told you. But, and, and so maybe actually a great thing is to say this. If humble truth and radical love and hospitality is our, is our norm for 
everybody, then it will not freak a group of people out if a new type of somebody walks in the door. If our position is, hey, how you doing? Oh, wretch like me, wonderful. Come on in. Let's talk. This is a safe space to deal with ideas. Yeah, wow, I don't agree with that at all, but can I, can I take you to lunch? I want to hear more. I want to talk. If that's our perspective about everything, then sure, we might have to have a sit down five minutes. Hey, how does this uniquely impact how you can see beauty and find empathy before you get to incongruity? But it isn't going to be this massive comment that slams into a youth group or slams into a church and puts everyone up in arms. If anything, it should be awesome. Lost people are coming to in town. Why on earth would they want to sit in a room and hear us sing songs about a sky fairy for an hour and then listen to a 2,000-year-old book from a guy wearing a bow tie? <laughs> no, but guys, that should... Like, that should, that, that should floor us and humble us and make us praise Jesus and long for him. And we can do it. Too much to say. Come back next week. Well, let me, let me pray. Yes. So I, I said on the thing, a position of humble truth and then radical love and hospitality. And I mean radical hospitality in this. Unpack it. We'll unpack it more next week. But I just, when, when I say radical love and hospitality, um, I mean this. I think I was raised to believe hospitality was when someone comes over, you like clean and you've got a nice like living room and you have dessert ready and like a pitcher of water ready. The church equivalent of that is that we have bathroom facilities available and we have greeters at the door. I love our greeter team. I'm not hating on the greeter team. Radical love and hospitality means when God brings inconvenient people here. When the person who sits next to you at worship makes you uncomfortable because they sat next to you. And then you're like, ooh, I should invite that person to lunch. That's radical love and hospitality. It's the, we might have to change our small group structure to help this person come to our small group. We might have to figure out how to translate our services because this group have come to our church. We might have to figure out nursery because I am super excited that a gay couple who adopted kids for some reason is coming to our church and needs childcare. That's going to make us uncomfortable. And that's what I mean by the radical love and hospitality part. All right, pray, worship. Jesus, thanks for today so much. Again, as we said last week, may this not distract us during, during worship but would even just the collective sense of grief, loss, combined with gospel excitement and passion for you, would that actually drive us to worship you afresh and anew this morning. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture and Christianity. 
Intown Community Church is located in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find out more information about our church on our website, intown.org. If you would like more information, please contact us at askintown at intown.org.